Today on Cross Defense, we're answering two questions about the Jews. That's right. First, was Martin Luther an anti-Semite? Well, I guess that's really more about Martin Luther, but it's related to the Jews. And second, will the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the bloodline of the Jews, be restored as God's chosen people before the end of time? And to answer this last question, we're turning to an early 20th century theologian, the good Reverend Theodore Grabner. Because the Dead Theologian Society, it's where it's at, my friends. So let's get into it. Welcome to Cross Defense, my friends. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church out here in Ferndale, California, where God's remnant, God's remnant is being gathered together by the Holy Spirit from the wicked wasteland of false doctrine that surrounds us. It's true. If during the show you'd like to send us your comments, your questions, your bits of biblical brilliance, well then, my friends, go to stmarksferndale.com slash contact. That's S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact. We'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, Pastor Bramwell, on YouTube, where I host all of our Winged Lion videos, all the videos that we create here in the Winged Lion studio in service to the church's evangelism efforts. We produce cross defense here, but we also produce a lot of other things as well. So check that out if you don't mind. If you find the show valuable, we'd appreciate it. We greatly appreciate it if you leave us a five-star rating and or a positive review on the podcast platform that you use to tune into this show. Thanks. Now, Jason. Jason wrote in saying, in part, Pastor Bramwell, I and several that I've shared cross-defense with will say I find your podcast very biblically sound, very well communicated, easy to understand, and very relevant. I mention this because I think having a guest from time to time would be great. However, I hope it will not take away from addressing hot topics or events that come up week to week that most are not hearing addressed with a biblical worldview in their churches or by their pastor. We need to pray for our LCMS pastors that they will have the courage to teach and preach full blast the full counsel, biblical law and gospel and two kingdoms, full counsel of God. Yes, absolutely. Amen to that, Jason. Thanks for the for the kind words. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for all of your support. Thanks for sharing this podcast with with your friends, with others, and I really appreciate your, your words of confidence, and, and I really, it helps build me up. So thanks, brother. Be assured that the guest segments on this show, they will not crowd out what you've come to expect from Cross Defense. Not at all. Not in the least. So today we're answering two questions that I've received from members here at St. Mark. People who weren't born and bred Lutherans, people who have come to this church, part of the remnant being gathered around from the wickedness that surrounds us, being gathered together around the altar of Christ. And they have, obviously, as people come to the truth, as I myself came into Lutheranism from a very similar background to these these men, they're going to have questions that aren't necessarily delved into in the catechism, in the, in the early catechesis, uh, the early formation 
of what it means to be a Lutheran. And so we're going to put these questions today in the uh, the from the inbox category, just for, for all intents and purposes, for, for good order. But they were actually received in person. So we have these two questions, both pertaining to the Jews, as I said at the beginning of the show. And they go something like this. First, was Martin Luther an anti-Semite? I've heard about the awful things he said about the Jews near the end of his life and, and how they inspired the evils that the Nazis carried out against the Jews during the Holocaust. Now, this question often gives Lutherans pause when they, when they first learn about it. They come into Lutheranism, everything's Christological, everything's Christian, and then all of a sudden they tune in to something on PBS or they, they hear their grandmother who watches PBS say something about, well, you know Martin Luther, he was, he was racist against the Jews. They learn that Martin Luther wrote strong, polemical words against Jews because they've been wrongly linked in popular culture to the Holocaust. It comes up, well, it came up a lot during the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but it comes up on a regular basis. It's an attack against Lutherans. It's, it's not an accurate attack, and it's not a substantive attack, but it is a popular attack that causes people to pause and think for a moment, rightly so. I'm always glad that this question gives Lutherans pause because I'm glad Lutherans want nothing to do with the evils that came out of Nazi Germany. Racism is sin. It is wickedness. Racism, in all of its forms, is evil. So the unequivocal answer, my friends, to this question is no. You can be assured of that. Martin Luther was not racist. He wrote strong, polemical words against the Jews, yes, absolutely, undeniably. Just as he wrote very strong, polemical words against the Roman Catholics, and yet he was not racist against the Italians. And, and he even wrote strong words against all the radical reformers who came after him. No matter whom he wrote against, when he wrote words that, the words that shock you today, the words that you find to be maybe crass or, or a little uh, blunt and shocking, well, these stormy and even angry words that he writes are because the people he's writing against reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's writing theologically. The Jews reject the gospel. Same with the Roman Catholics. Same with all the sectarians who put their hearers back under the law. They're all one and the same when you think about it. There are two religions in the world, the religion of the law and the religion of the gospel. Everything that enslaves man unto, unto his own works, well, that's religion of the law. And Luther went full blast on all of them. Not once, note this, not once did Luther write anything negative about the ethnicity of the Jews. Not a single time in all of his public writings do we have anything about him writing negatively about the Jews as an ethnicity, as a what we'd call today a race. His harsh words are theological words aimed at the Jewish religion. And we need to be mindful of that. The Jews' ethnicity and their religion, they often run parallel. We think of them as one but they're not the same thing. When NPR and PBS and CBN and all the others who like to point this out about Luther, falsely going off of pop culture, they like to connect Luther to Hitler. When they do that, they're parroting the uninformed lie 
that was popularized in the years immediately after World War II, in the World War II era, by, as one might expect, if you think about it, <laughs> a journalist, one Mr. William Shire. He was a well-known war correspondent during the time of the war, and after the war, he wrote a well-received popular book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, in which he falsely says, not as a historian, but as a journalist who didn't do all of his homework, and I quote, the great founder of Protestantism was both a passionate anti-Semite and a ferocious believer in absolute obedience to political authority. And Shire, my friends, was wrong on both accounts. But his words have grown into the popular view of Martin Luther to this day. And these are the words that are often cited as, as the, uh, the evidence of Luther's racism. Nevertheless, when writing about Jews as an ethnicity, Luther always and only had good things to say about them, precisely because Jesus was Jewish, and Luther loves Jesus. This is evident in his first reference to the Jewish people, the treatise that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. Now, conversely, when writing about their theology, he, well, he had little good to say. Because their religion is false and therefore dangerous to our neighbors. In this way, Luther modeled his teaching after Paul, who wrote both Romans 9, 3-5, and Galatians 5, 1-2. Romans 9, 3-5 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belonging the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Galatians 5, 1 and 12 say, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I wish those who unsettle you, Paul says, with the Jewish teaching of circumcision, Jewish religious practice, he says, I wish they would emasculate themselves, that is, cut off their entire penis, not just the foreskin. When they tell, tell you to, to circumcise the foreskin, he says, I wish they would just cut the whole member off, in case you didn't get what Paul was saying. Hopefully I made that clear. <laughs> this is how Luther wrote about the Jews. They are the people group into which Jesus was born, and therefore they ought not be treated poorly, as was so common in the Middle Ages by others in the Christian nations and in all nations. But because of their bloodline, they should be given a respect and honor because Jesus was Jewish. Yet their religion enslaves our neighbors under the law, and so they ought not be given a pass, theologically, to corrupt people. Now, furthermore, we do well, my friends, to remember that Luther's work on the Jews and their lies, which does come at the end of his life, but I would suggest to you is not the evidence from the beginning of his works about Jesus being a Jew, to the end, about their lies, I would suggest that you get out of your mind this idea that Luther grew frustrated and angry toward the Jews and therefore became racist. No, I would take that junk out of your brain 
and look at the fact that he was dealing with their race and Jesus early on, and he was brilliant on the fact, and then he was dealing with their religion later on and still was brilliant and still consistent. I would suggest to you that he is always consistent, and there is no real uh, growing frustrated in his old cantankerous ways. Oh, all that Luther became an old cranky man, and he, he hated the Jews because of it because they just wouldn't get it through their thick heads. Well, no, that's not the idea. It's not racist. He was frustrated that they wouldn't get it through their thick heads, but no more frustrated than he was with the Roman Catholics or with the Reformed, Zwinglians, and these sorts of things. No. Luther is very consistent, and we can be very content in that regard. In his later writing, dealing with the Jewish lies, he suggests pushing the Jews from the German lands and that their synagogue schools and homes be destroyed so they have nowhere to return. This was written, take note, to the Christian authority of a Christian land. Now, why is that important? Why does that matter? Because Luther is a Christian pastor advising his Christian prince on how to preserve a Christian culture wherein Christian citizens will be able to live as Christians without being corrupted by the lies of the devil. <laughs> on this front, we might take a note from Luther and how he advises the civil authorities in a land of our own, which, while not overtly Christian in our documentation, is Christian in culture and has been since its founding. Now, if you want to hear a similar bit of teaching from a Lutheran pastor in today's cultural climate, well, then watch my Ferndale Fortitude called Old Dave and the LGBTQ Bear, where I call for the people of Ferndale to help drive away from our town the unrepentant LGBTQ influencers without equivocation. It's the same thing. See, shepherds defend sheep from wolves and bears. This is our job. And it's one that I think we should do better at, that we should strive to be stronger at. Because it often takes clear and concise, strong, polemical language to get that job done. God's under-shepherds, Christ's under-shepherds, pastors, we bear a rod and a staff, but I don't think we use it, use it as well as we should, as we ought to. Our pluralized culture, it's what preps our, our minds today to think Luther was wrong in what he said because we've been sensitized to living among unbelievers. And that wasn't the case for the 16th century German Lutherans of the day. Luther was a, was a pastor who, who didn't want his neighbors led to hell by the Christless religion of the Jews. We should keep that in mind. Or of the papists or the sectarians, be they called Baptists or Methodists or what have you. And so, Luther spoke boldly in service to his neighbors, not against a race, but most certainly against a false religion. And as a final note, before we shift to the next question, to further show Luther's faithfulness to the gospel, which can be maintained even among 
stormy and warlike words. Yes, it can be done. It ought to be done. Among all the 16th century reformers, Luther was the only one to reject the use of force when proclaiming the gospel or contending with religious dissidents. The Lutherans were the only ones who didn't advocate violence toward their neighbor in the name of the gospel. Calvin sent Servetus to the stake for denying the Trinity. The Zwinglians drowned Anabaptist heretics. Tudor rulers in the enlightened England sent a thousand dissenters, both Catholic and Protestant, to their deaths. And all this to say nothing of the Roman Catholic Crusades, the French massacre of of St. Bartholomew, and the Spanish Inquisition, of course. See, not only is there no reason to worry about being Lutheran because of how he treated his neighbors, Jewish, Catholic, sectarian, or otherwise, but in fact, the argument can be made that confessional Lutherans are the only Christians who can say such a thing. (laughs) Our history is the most impeccable of all Christians. No, my friend, no. Luther was not a racist. You can be certain of that. Luther tells us himself exactly what he was. He admits it, he knows it, he's fully aware of it. He says, and I quote, I was born to go to war and give battle to sects and devils. That is why my books are stormy and warlike. I have to root out the stumps and the clumps, break away the thorns and brambles. I am the great feller of forests who must clear the land and level it. (laughs) Oh, man, good stuff. In a comment on Psalm 119.53, which reads in the ESV, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Philip Melanchthon says to Luther, you have that same kind of wrath within you. And it's a heroic virtue. Let's not allow the world to turn Luther's virtue into a vice. Let's take our first break. When we come back, we'll take up our second question of the day dealing with the Jews. Thanks for listening. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but for some, the passion to become a pastor, teacher, deaconess, or other full-time church worker came later in life. Leaving a career to pursue this life of service is not without challenges, yet these are sacred and joyous vocations unlike any other. Set apart to serve, the Church Work Recruitment Initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is here to help. Visit kfuo.org slash SAS to learn how you can put your experience and skills to work through full-time service in Christ's church. That's kfuo.org slash SAS. Welcome back to Cross Defense, and now on to our next question about the Jews. Do Lutherans hold to replacement theology? This is the question I was asked. If you search the term replacement theology on YouTube or wherever, you'll quickly realize you've stepped into the, the wide path of American evangelicalism. It's a term you may be familiar with, either from your own background or from the influences on your non-Lutheran friends and family members. Today, my friends, my goal is to pull you back away from that, that wide path onto the narrow path of historic Christianity. 
which many of us here in America need desperately. Equipping your mind with a study of Scripture that will help you do the same thing for your friends and family as you engage them on this kind of topic. To do this, I don't want to do it myself. I don't like doing it myself. To do this, we're going to use a document that was published long enough ago that the author is dead. Three cheers for the Dead Theologian Society. And I highly recommend you read Dead Theologians. They are well worth the time. And they will get you away from the muck and the mire, enough away from our own contentious uh, fight that we're engaged in right now to see a little more clearly. And yet sometimes you can, you can come right back into it and you can, you can be in the fight and you can be more equipped and better ready to engage. And this particular theologian is, is long enough ago where he pulls us away, but he's still near enough to our own time that the context is readily applicable to our situation today. We're going to a book published in 1941 by CPH, Concordia Publishing House, War in the Light of Prophecy. Was it foretold? Reply to Modern Kiliasm by Reverend Theodore Grabner. Now, Kiliasm is the Greek equivalent, if you don't know, of the more common Latinate word, millennialism. It comes from kilia meaning 1,000. And maybe next week we can actually talk about amillennialism itself so you can defend the truth against the evangelical pre- and post-millennialists who've been led away from truth and into an incongruent interpretation of Scripture, but unwittingly, I suspect. But today we're answering the question of whether or not the Jews, as a nation, as an ethnicity, an ethne, a people, a race, will be saved apart from the gospel of Christ. Now, I think you'll find it interesting that Reverend Grabner points out that with the exception of Dr. J. Gratia Machen, his group of Presbyterians, all the fundamentalist churches, as they were once regularly called, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, all of them, and you'll see a connection already to evangelicalism, as that's where evangelicalism comes from, all of them are millennialists. Now today, those groups have splintered into uh, many more, a myriad of more church bodies, right, including all the non-denominational congregations. These, these groups are, are basically, uh, these non-denominational groups are basically one of those. They're, they're usually Baptist in denial. And these are the folks we, we hear pollsters and pundits lump together as evangelicals, right? We hear this language all the time. It's also why we Lutherans aren't regularly involved in the covenant versus replacement theology debate that you'll find when you Google these terms. Our position has been settled since Paul penned Romans. And nevertheless, just like so many of our neighbors today, as they're trying to, to use end-time signs to, to fuel their false doctrine, the teachers, that is, well, so did people who lived through World War II and, and one before that. This book, actually, by Grabner, is a reprint, an update from the first book he wrote during World War I. People were saying this World War I was the sign of the end, and then World War II was the sign of the end, and all this kind of stuff. So Reverend Grabner took up our topic asking, do the scriptures teach that a restoration of Israel as a nation and a general conversion of the Jews is to be expected. Isn't that the question? That is the question. And so he's already dealt with it. Here's his simple, thoughtful, and biblical answer to equip your mind, excite your imagination as you think about it, 
and comfort your soul with the gospel of Christ alone. The expectation of a final return to Israel, to the land and the God of their fathers, is based upon a literal interpretation of such texts as the following. Ezekiel 37, 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. Isaiah 66, 20 as well, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Back into Ezekiel, they use this verse taken literally, 39, 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. A conversion of the Jews as a nation to Christianity is found by certain interpreters in the 11th chapter of Paul's letter as well to the Romans, verse 25 and 26 specifically. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware Of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So the question, which first of all must receive an adequate answer, is this. When, when is this return of Israel to the true worship of God to be expected according to prophecy? When? And the answer is found also in the Old Testament in Hosea, Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. It's presumed by the literal interpreters of these texts that the latter days refer to the time immediately preceding the return of Christ in glory. Has this assumption, does this assumption have scriptural warrant? That's the next question. And so to answer that question, we're going to read these following passages. 1 Peter 1 verse 20. He, and that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Hebrews 1, 2. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world in these last days. Acts 2.17, and in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 1 Corinthians 10.11 as well. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages 
has come. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Okay, so now Reverend Gravener asks this question. What do these passages prove? They prove that the last days commence with the coming of the Redeemer in the flesh. The coming of Jesus in the flesh inaugurated these last days. What Joel said of the last days was fulfilled at Pentecost, which is (laughs) why Peter quotes Joel, Acts 2.17. The Christians living in Corinth and those addressed by Peter were living in the last time of the world. Hence the passages from Ezekiel and Isaiah and Romans. They refer to the conversion of the Jews during the entire New Testament age, my friends. The entire age. The age that we're living in right now. The last times. The latter days. And similar expressions like these. They're terms applied by the scriptures to the time which elapses that is carried on between the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost and the return of Christ in glory at the end. Then during the entire New Testament age, children of Israel, according to the flesh, genetically descendants of Abraham, will be won by the gospel of Christ. But does not the word of prophecy tell us that we may expect a return of Israel to Jerusalem? Grabner asks, honestly, dealing with this question, and he answers, it does. As already cited in Isaiah 66, 20, it most certainly does. But are we forced to take this prophecy literally? And that's, that's where the confusion lies. It's a, it's a hermeneutical error, how to, how to read Scripture to let the context of the verses tell us what the author is saying, whether he is speaking in a figurative way or a literal way, based on the genre of the text and the context of the text. In the letter to the Hebrews, verse 12, 22, we read, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's clear. That Jerusalem here, Zion, they're here used figuratively for the Christian church. Jerusalem and Zion are words that apply to the Christian church in this New Testament era. And certainly those Hebrews whom the writer addresses, those Jews, were not gathered into the capital of Palestine. Read in your Bible, the the verse that follows that immediately afterwards. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Are we to take the firstborn here literally? That the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Only the firstborn? Compare also such texts as Isaiah 52 too which if taken literally would mean that only Jews and no one else, no uncircumcised, will ever set foot on the streets of Jerusalem. 
Kind of stinks to be Titus then, yeah? <laughs> Gee, thanks, St. Paul. The entire chapter, Isaiah 52, proves that Jerusalem is used figuratively by prophecy as denoting the New Testament church, composed of both Jews and Gentiles converted to the Christian faith, the Christian religion, the religion of the gospel. Now, if the description of a gathering of Israel to Jerusalem is to be taken literally, as the pre- and post-millennialists will mandate, then by the same law of interpretation, as these evangelicals are using, these fundamentalists, we must take in their literal sense the descriptions of the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishment of the Levitical, that is, the bloody sacrifices on the temple mount. Ezekiel 44.1 and 46.24. However, this would be in clear, flat contradiction to the doctrine of Christ and his apostles that through the sacrifice of the Son of God on Calvary, all sacrifices for the atonement of sin have been abolished. Read Hebrews 8 and 9 and 10. Read, read all three of those. Do that. That's your homework assignment, cross-defense listener. Absolutely. Do that thing. Indeed, if we take the figurative descriptions of the New Testament church, of, of our Messiah's rule, of Christ's rule, out of the Old Testament, then there's no prophecy left regarding the church of the New Testament era. And so we can rightly challenge any Kiliast, any millennialists, to point out a single, yes, a single, literal, strictly literal prophecy regarding the New Testament church, the New Testament ministry, the spread of Christianity through Christian missions, the rule of Christ through the gospel. All of this is figurative. All of this, this language in the Old Testament that points us to Jesus, that Jesus himself says, all of the Old Testament is about me, all of it is about him. Not in the literal sense of, of geographic locations and bloodlines, but in the spiritual sense. They are the foreshadow of the thing, the real thing, Jesus Christ. And yet easily understood, in the light of fulfillment, we, we get this. We, in all other, other realms, evangelicals are great about this too. I mean, they get this in every other, every other instance. In fact, this is why it's incongruent. This is why it's inconsistent. The logic breaks. And so Gravener says, we hold that there is not one text employed by Kiliasts, the millennialists, which does not give satisfactory and biblical sense if understood, either concerning the kingdom of grace or the kingdom of glory, heaven. And on that note, let's take a break. We'll come right back and we'll continue our conversation on whether the Jews will be saved apart from Christ. We'll be right back. Military veteran, engineer, entrepreneur. These are just some of the former careers held by current LCMS pastors. Careers that they left behind to serve congregations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. No matter the background, our Lord calls men who have a passion for the word and a love for serving Christ to be pastors. A sacred, joyful, and essential vocation. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about becoming a pastor, visit weareyourseminaries.org and put your experience and skills to new use in pastoral ministry. Visit weareyourseminaries.org 
www.seminaries.org. Welcome back to Cross Defense, you faithful, thoughtful Christian readers of Scripture. You will not fail to see that the main difficulty of the restoration theory lies in the fact that it presumes an irresistible grace. If in a certain period all the Jews are to be converted, the grace of God must be irresistibly implanted that it must, it must create a faith in the hearts of every member of the race against their will. But God forces no one to believe in him. Irresistible grace is the error of the Calvinists. This is what Calvin teaches. The scriptures know of no conversion of nations in mass. It's not how God works. He's not a rapist. He's a lover. He's a wooer of his bride. He doesn't take her by force in some back alley. However, there are numerous statements in Scripture which specifically exclude the notion of a final conversion of the Jews and their establishment and, and their general ingathering as a nation in the Holy Land. And so we can take these up. Of the Jews, Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 to 16, that they killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and they persecuted us, and they pleased not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. According to this passage, the wrath of God has passed to the uttermost upon the Jews, their sins being filled up. Now, how in the face of such a clear assertion as that can a general conversion of the Jews be predicted? Twenty centuries have borne the testimony to the truth of these words of Paul. The wrath of God has passed upon Israel to the uttermost, Missionary work, as Grabner points out, has no field comparable in hardness and in all but hopeless sterility than that of the Jewish people, to serve as a missionary among the Jews, to try to, to claim these people for Christ, to win them over to Jesus. No other field of mission work is harder, says Grabner in 1941. And I have no reason to doubt that even in 2023. To this day, the Jews are irreconcilable enemies of Christ, Grabner says. The judgment passed upon them in the word of the Old Testament prophecy has been executed, carried out. Hardness of heart is the penalty carried out upon Israel for its rejection of the Messiah, of Jesus. And it was announced long ago through the mouth of Isaiah that this would happen. Chapter 6, Verse 9 through 13, he said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? 
And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And in the gospel, in the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, our Savior declares that the final rejection of Israel announced in these verses was even then being executed upon them, being carried out upon them. This unbelieving nation, ethnicity of people. And Paul agrees with Isaiah when he says in Romans 11 that but a remnant shall be saved out of Israel in the New Testament age. This is what Paul's teaching in Romans 11. This is the consonant doctrine of the Old and New Testaments. For her rejection of the gospel, hardness of heart will come upon Israel. Out of the entire nation, but a remnant shall be saved. Hang on that, friends, a remnant. Jeremiah foretells in the 15th chapter of his book, in most solemn and awful words, the dispersion of Israel into the Gentile world and her untold sufferings by famine, by captivity, and yeah, by the sword. Israel's cast out. Thou hast forsaken me, we read. Therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. But, now, now take notice. Here we go. Take notice of what follows. It shall be well with thy remnant. Of the remnant, God's elect in Israel, Isaiah wrote in chapter 10, 21 and 22, a remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Observe also here the agreement with Paul in Romans 11. (laughs) Paul might have known his Old Testament. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, a remnant chosen by grace, he says. The chief trouble with with the kiliastic, the millennialistic exegetic is that scripture itself rejects the literalistic interpretation of these prophecies. Scripture says that's not how you're supposed to read them. Scripture itself plainly teaches that the kingdom promised to David and Israel is a spiritual kingdom. We get this all through the Gospels as the the apostles, the disciples, were looking for Jesus to restore the kingdom. They missed the point. And so millennialism is a return to that Jewish missing of the point, that that kiliastic missing of the point. They were looking for these prophecies to have their fulfillment in an earthly way. They have their fulfillment in the church in the spiritual reign of Christ, which is what Jesus is teaching all through the Gospels. And Reverend Grabner also tells us to see Acts 2.16 and following and Acts 15.14 and following and then Hebrews 12.22 again. According to these literalists, the kingdom promised Israel, it's an earthly kingdom 
with its seat of government in Jerusalem, isn't it? In Palestine, in the Middle East, possessed by the Jewish nation. And according to them, it shall endure for a thousand years. There's, there's no getting around the fact that the prophecy in Revelation distinctly and repeatedly mentions a thousand years. However, in 2 Samuel 7, 16, we see it distinctly says, thy kingdom shall be established forever. And Luke 1, of his kingdom, there shall be no end. But 1,000 years and eternity, <laughs> Grabner points out, are not equivalents. And an earthly kingdom cannot be an eternal kingdom. And so then we see all these millennialists starting to do their theological math and try to make things work because they're reading it wrong from the beginning and they don't know how to make it compute. So we'll deal with the 1,000 years, that the millennium. Maybe let's do that next week. We'll deal with that in a future episode anyway, if not next week, hopefully next week. But right now, let's round out today's show with Romans 11. Gravener anticipates this question regarding it. But does not Paul write in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved? So turn to the text in your Bible, friends. In what connection do we see these words occurring? That's the question, to answer that question. It's essential. If you take any words out of their connection, you can prove almost anything from the Bible, as we've seen. Paul had referred in the preceding chapter, Romans 10, to the rejection of Israel as a nation. Now, in chapter 11, he says, I asked then, verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. And the reply in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. His elect will be saved also out of Israel. In verse 5, so too at the present time, the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then he says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What the Spirit saying through Paul here is clear. Since the Jews were rejected as a nation because of their unbelief, it might appear as if no Jew could hereafter ever be saved. But to Paul was revealed the mystery to give to the brothers, something he, could, he couldn't ex- know except by divine revelation. Compare that with Revel- uh, Ephesians 3.3. 3. And this mystery, he says, is that the blindness of Israel, her hardness of heart, isn't a full blindness, a partial blindness is what he says it is. Not only in Paul's time were there elect among the Jews. This the Romans knew very well. Paul himself was a Jew. Through the New Testament age, until the fullness of the Gentiles, the elect among the non-Jewish races, has come in until that's happened, until every elect child of God has been converted to the end of time. Through this age that we're living in right now, 
this blindness shall endure. But this blindness shall be partial because our God is a loving, gracious God. It was to not include every single Jewish individual. And so all Israel will be saved. Note well. (laughs) Note well. He doesn't say, and then all Israel will be saved. But no, he says, so in this way, the elect among the Jews will be saved. Throughout the age of the Gentiles, the New Testament age that we're in right now, God will search out and, and find his own elect among the Jews in spite of the fact that the sentence of blindness has been pronounced and executed upon that nation. All, all Israel here then means all of the true sons of Abraham, Galatians 3, 7, those among them whom God is in his unsearchable wisdom has chosen from everlasting to be saved, the elect among the Jews of all ages. This is how the word Israel is used frequently throughout the prophecies. Israel equals the elect Israel, those among Israel who are faithful to the promise of the coming Messiah, Jesus. All right, so now turn to Ezekiel chapter 20, and here we find in verse 40, for on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there There, all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. Now, having read 40, bump up there real quick and read 38. What does it say? I will purge out the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. So there will be those in the latter days who will be purged out from Israel who will not enter the kingdom of God, the land of Israel. Yet those who do enter are called, in verse 40, all the house of Israel. See, some of Israel won't enter, but those who do are called all of Israel. Doesn't this prove that all Israel is a term in Scripture applied to God's elect among the Jews? The remnant which remains after the wickedness are purged, the wicked are purged. And so we read in in Romans 11, right? The same thing. Again, turn to Isaiah 19 here. There we read Israel without limitation is called the inheritance of God. Yet in chapter 10, 21, it's said that only a remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob. Though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. Here again, we find positive proof that Israel, Isaiah nineteen twenty five, equals elect Israel, a remnant of Israel. Those who truly deserve the name Israelite are the chosen children of that race. Not all of them. Even as it is said of Egypt and Assyria in Scripture, without limitation, that they are blessed, Isaiah 20, 25. Although the prophet has previously also said, he made very plain the fact that both Assyria and Egypt will be rejected on account of their pride and unbelief, and that only a remnant out of those nations 
in the course of time will enter the kingdom of Christ. And it's said only so that we can understand those texts in which it is said that not only Israel, but the whole Gentile world will come to Jerusalem, will be gathered to Zion. So we're running out of time, so I'm going to leave you to take a look at Isaiah 49.12 and surrounding verses on your own, as well as Isaiah 63-6. to All of this is still dealing with the, uh, the remnant of the group, not the whole group being necessary. And also John 11, 51 and 52 deals with this. Um, but for now, we're going to jump to Reverend Grabner's summary, his, his summarized answer to this question. He, he answers it by saying, we have examined the passages upon which the expectation of a restored and converted Israel is based and have found them to be in harmony, only in harmony, if properly understood with all the other scriptures dealing with the future of the Jewish race. Israel will remain hardened to the end during the New Testament age. Only a remnant shall be saved and the race will be scattered among the Gentiles until Christ returns unto judgment. That Israel, of which Romans 12, 16 speaks, is the total number of elect out of the Jewish race, not all the Jews. And that's all the time we have. So I hope that's a sufficient answer. It's a pretty good answer. It's biblically based. That's why it's good. <laughs> and I hope it also shows you how we don't have to answer these things anew for ourselves with every generation. We can go back to the dead guys and see how they answered it and actually get clarity so we're not caught up in the weeds with what's going on in our own, our own conversation today, especially given the, the amount of voices that the internet delivers to us. So Friends, go in peace and serve the Lord, knowing that there is no way to the Father except through his Son, Jesus the Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, what matters is that you're a Christian. And I'll talk to you next week. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.